you know, I, I was thinking if I got up too soon, he might come off the stage and tackle me, you know, the football exuberance there. So, uh, well, it is good to be with you this morning. Uh, fun passage for me that we're going to be looking at. So you can go ahead and turn there, John chapter 16. Uh, we're in the upper room discourse, so it's kind of a real meaningful uh, time and text in the life of Jesus and his disciples. John chapter 16. And the Gospels are an interesting thing. I, I find that there's, at different times, when you go to expound on it or talk about it, that you'll either pick up on the words, what is the message, what, what's being said, what are the words, or you'll pick up on the narrative story, what's going on in, in, in this, uh, the lives of these guys or this progression uh, as they move out or, or go through life, and is there a connection between their story and our story. What's kind of fun, I think, with this is it's both. Uh, it's a passage where we're going to get to look at some of the words that Jesus is speaking with these disciples and then learn a bit from the story, where they're at in life, and that oftentimes we're in the similar or same place. And so it's kind of fun. But before we jump in, let's go ahead and open in prayer. Father, we just come this morning, and we're excited to just be able to learn, open up your scriptures, and look back. It's a time when we can be with our friends, with family, and I just pray that you would bless this time, that it would be rich, and that we would be able to grow, that you would have your, your spirit cause us to grow as we look at this story of Jesus, our Lord, and his disciples. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. So I'll just jump in. I'm reading in the NIV here, beginning at verse 17, and so let's just Go ahead and jump right in. Verse 17, some of his disciples, that's Jesus' disciples, said to one another, what does he mean by saying, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me, and because I am going to the Father? They kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. And Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this, and so he said to them, are you asking one another what I meant when I said, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? I tell you the truth, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief. But I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joys, your joy. In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. I tell you the truth, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask, and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. Though I have been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language but will tell you plainly about my Father. In that day you will ask in my name. And I'm not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I'm leaving the world and going back to my Father. Just a brief comment here, uh, a little bit on the text. Jesus is speaking figuratively. He's speaking in riddles all the way up until this point. And we read in the very next uh, verse, we're going to read 
of the disciples saying, you're no longer speaking in riddles, you're no longer speaking figuratively. Jesus operated within the Jewish tradition where the teachers and the rabbis uh, would speak like the wisdom literature, which is they want to involve you in what it is they're trying to teach you. They want to engage your mind. They don't want you passive. They don't want you just sitting there. They want you to have to wrestle through it so that you get to a point of uh, drawing the conclusions or learning the message, and you, you kind of go, oh, I get it. And we all know that if we have to wrestle through things, we learn it first-person experience. We learn it at a level that we can't learn if someone's just spoon-feeding us. If you're going to help someone in math, uh, helping them understand what's going on is a, a whole lot better than just saying 2 plus 2 equals 4. Just, just write it down. We'll move on to the next one. They're not going to learn that way. And what they did in this time was to always try and to uh, bring people along like that. We do that in America with kids. With children, we, we try and give them object lessons, right? You've always heard that with, with little children in school. And, and we try and uh, put them in laboratories and, and where they can experiment with it and, and exercise and stuff like that. But somehow, when we get to adulthood, we just stop that in America. And now we're no longer going to involve you in the learning process. We're just going to tell you what you don't know. Uh, the Jewish culture didn't do that. Jesus was dealing with adults, and all the way up into adulthood, they would want to get you to wrestle with what they're saying. We have words for this in the English language. The inductive method of teaching or study or anything like that, some of you might have an inductive study Bible, is one that seeks to pull you into it. A deductive style is one that just tries to show you the progression in an argument or give you the information. And what Jesus is using here is... He's been inductively teaching his disciples. That's what it means by I've been talking in figures of speech and, and these kinds of things. He's wanting them to really engage and be involved in what's going on. Second thing I just want to point out is, is the interesting uh, nature of how Jesus talks about prayer right now. He brings it up and says, you need to ask the Father and he's going to give you whatever you ask in my name. And then he comes back in this next paragraph in verse uh, 26, and says, uh, uh, verse 25 and 26, I'll read it. Though I have been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I'll no longer use this kind of language, but I, tell you, I will tell you plainly about my Father. In that day you will ask in my name. I am not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. He wants to talk to them about prayer, so he says, there's going to come a time where you ask in my name, God's going to give it. And then he comes back later and he qualifies. I'm not saying I'm going to ask for you. No, the Father already loves you. You're just going to ask in my name. Now, what's going on there and why is it such a, a marvelous thing to read uh, kind of at this point in the story with the disciples and Jesus? Well, they really believed in this culture that certain pious individuals, you've got to remember, they didn't have the view that we take where every believer has the Spirit of God, of God dwelling in him or her. In that culture, the Spirit of God dwelt in one place, uh, the tabernacle, the, the temple in Jerusalem. And certain key people, the Spirit of God was upon them or with them. Uh, and you see it in the Old Testament in several places. And so they really had a view that there were certain marked individuals that were teachers or rabbis or, or godly prophets. And those people had a relationship with God that was unique. And if they asked God for something, God would give it. Like Elijah asking God for things, or Moses doing certain things, or other 
prophets going to God and being able to do marvelous things. And so when Jesus started walking the circuit and being a, a well-known and recognized rabbi or teacher working miracles, what did everyone want to do? They didn't want to just pray for somebody. They wanted to bring that somebody or that request to Jesus, and they wanted Jesus to go to God on their behalf. Okay? That, was how, that was how it worked. Okay? The prayer of a righteous man kind of was very powerful and effective. So you wanted to find that guy. And so Jesus wanted to make sure that the disciples weren't reading into what he was saying, that, that this pattern was what he was talking about. In that day when you ask God for things in my name, I'm not saying I'm going to be the one asking for you. You're not coming to me and I'm the guy doing it. God loves you because you've accepted me and believed that I've come from him. You're asking in my name, but you're the one asking him. He's, going to, he's basically saying that pattern or that authority or, or, or that way of getting prayer answered that I've got, that you guys are well acquainted with, that's going to be yours. Don't mistake what I'm saying here. We see it played out in the whole book of Acts, don't we? We see Paul and Peter going out, and they're working the miracles now. And they're the ones that everyone's looking at and saying, this person's marked by God. And so you see people running after them, trying to touch their cloaks, right? Because maybe God will answer their prayers or help them because of this godly man. And so Jesus is predicting this. This is really, I think, the first time they're, they're, they're catching wind of this. This is being passed on to them. They're going to go directly to God, and God's going to answer it when they ask it in Jesus' name. He is taking and multiplying that calling and that power. And it's a fascinating thing, and it's very intimate, I think. What a thing to hear from Jesus. And so he goes through great pains to make sure that they understand what he means by them asking God. And then in verse 29, we move on, and it says this, Then Jesus' disciples said back to Jesus, now you are speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things and that you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. And this makes us believe that you came from God. Now what did they mean by you don't even need anyone to ask you questions? What did they mean by that? It seems like an odd thing when they're, they're in the middle of this, wow, we finally get it, and we see that you don't even need anyone to ask you questions. Well, just back up to verse 19. Verse 19, Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this, and so he jumped in. They didn't ask him the question that precipitated this teaching from Jesus. Jesus read them, and he just went in and taught. And so what they're saying is, hey, you're not speaking uh, in a confusing manner anymore. You're not forcing us to do all this. You're just speaking clearly, and we recognize you don't even need us to ask the questions. And we believe that you came from God. And they're excited. Let me read this again. Try and imagine these disciples saying these words in any other way other than in an excited fashion, okay? Then the disciples, Jesus' disciples said, now you are speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things and that you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. And this makes us believe that you came from God. I don't think it makes sense if you read it in any other way. They just had an aha moment, a moment of clarity, a moment when kind of everything comes into focus. You know what I mean? You ever had those? Are those ever a downer? Are those ever a frustrating? I mean, when, you, when it all crystallizes for you, it's, it's like a moment of joy. It finally came together. The riddle has been solved. Wow. 
okay? And there's always aha moments with groups or with people all throughout time, and we see them even in the Bible. I think one of the, one of the neat times is when the children of Israel come through the Red Sea, and you got to remember, they're terrified, right? I mean, I'm, I'd be pretty terrified. There's people behind me, walls of water on both sides. You get to the other side, all of a sudden, God not only solves your escape, but he kills off all your chasers. And you say, wow, one fell swoop and solved all the problems. Man, it all makes sense now. And so what did they Their response was, who is this man that even the wind, even nature listens to him? This is a person of authority. And they're coming to another moment here where they're recognizing this is a person of authority. And it crystallizes for them right there. And I think what's crystallizing is it's not just that this is a godly man or God's man, but this is the God man. We recognize that you came from the Father. I think up until this point, they thought they'd back the winner. It's like picking an NFL team to like or somebody in the, in the uh, March Madness, right? Uh, you pick a team, you think they're going to win because they've got a great coach. And it's going to play itself out. And there's a lot of teams going on back in Jesus' day. There's the people that just wanted to overthrow the Roman government. There's the Pharisees. There's the Sadducees. There's the Romans themselves. There's all these different competing teams. There's other people out there claiming to be the deliverer of the nation of Israel. And I think these guys feel like they've backed the winner. We've got the best head coach. We've got the best team leader. We've got the best shot at winning. And they're excited because they've backed the winner. And they're walking into Jerusalem that last week. And they're saying silly things that show that they think they're just on a team that's competing with other teams. They don't really quite get all of it. And they're saying, Jesus, should we uh, call down fire and lightning on these people teasing us? And then they're arguing with themselves, okay, when we uh, finally win the, the Super Bowl or, or March Madness, who's going to clip the net off of the rim? You know, who, who's going to get that, that pride of place position? Does that make sense? They're kind of arguing about this. And I think what they're beginning to realize here is it's not just a head coach they're dealing with. It's not just a team. Jesus came from God. And I think it's beginning to put it on a whole new level for them. This isn't just a game. This isn't just teams competing. This is bigger than, than right here and right now. And this man just isn't a godly man. It's not just a prophet. He's come down from God. I think they begin to realize it, and it crystallizes here. And so that's what, what happens. God brings moments of understanding. God brings aha moments into our life. God brings these times where it all kind of begins to make sense about the faith and about God and about this Christian walk. God brings these times. We all know it. The second thing, though, is this. These times are followed by new tests and new trials. We get these moments where everything kind of comes together, but guess what? We're right on the heels of a new test or a new trial. Listen to what Jesus says. He affirms them. You believe at last, verse 31. But a time is coming and has come. It's right now. When you will be scattered each to his own home, you will leave me all alone. He sees their excitement. He affirms it. You believe it last. And then he immediately starts to try to prepare them and say, but, but slow down just a little bit. Don't get too excited, okay? There's a new trial coming. 
And we do that, don't we? When, we? when we get those moments where it all makes sense, we rest. We think, now I can skate, I can coast. It's all come together for me. All the hard work is done. From here on out, it's, it's easy. But we don't realize sometimes that faith is a journey, and it's dynamic, and that this is a marathon. We get a click. It clicks into place, but it's like the roller coaster that's going up that first hill at the amusement park. And you know how you're sitting in it, and it's click, 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 and it's just one click after the other? That's kind of the journey we're on. But we've got what I would call these utopian itches. We think everything should be perfect in this world, and if we just can get around the next corner or over the next hill or solve this one problem, we've got this itch, right? And we think if we can just get that itch scratched, everything will be utopia. And I never tire of coming back to what Eugene Peterson taught me, and that's life is messy and God is mysterious. It's not that way. We don't live in the Garden of Eden anymore. We live in a fallen world. And so Jesus continues on. In verse 33, says this, I've told you these things. I've prepared you. I'm letting you know what's going on so that in me you may have peace. You can have rest. You can find strength and security. You can go on. In me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. Not you may, not you might. It could happen. You will have trouble. That tells me something about everyone in this room. I'm not trying to put you in a box, say that I've got you all figured out, because I've learned, I used to do uh, all those personality tests, and then I think it was so fun, you know, you, you peg people, and they never thought it was fun, because <laughs> um, people don't like being put in a box, right? So, uh, not to put you in a box, but I know something's true about you. Your life isn't easy. You and everyone around you, your life is not easy necessarily easy. There are trials. There are tribu tribulations. There are difficulties. It's not perfect. I know that about everyone in this room. Jesus told us it would be that way. So we are coming here this morning as needy people. Some of us tired. Some of us beat up. Some of us confused. Some of us conflicted, frustrated, empty, we come here with different things, but the common root of all of them is we're not coming here with life being perfect. Jesus predicted this, but he encourages us with these last words. But take heart, I have overcome the world. It's going to be difficult, it's going to be trial, it's going to be a marathon, but guess what? You're going to finish. You can finish. I've already gone and mapped it all out. I know what's going on. I've conquered all the things that could forever take you away from God. I've canceled sin and that penalty. Guess what? If you stay with me, I've overcome the world. I'll get you there. I'm reminded of uh, the story. Not the, it's not a story. I mean, I watched it on TV. I remember the Olympics. I was uh, in Big Bear in California in a pizza parlor watching. Uh, I, like the, I like the track races that go fast. I don't like the marathon ones. There's too many things that happen in between it, and then you come back, and you know things have changed, and they're making up stories, and you, I don't know. They're just not fast, right? <laughs> uh, I'm a little bit ADD that way, and so I like the fast races. I mean, they got those computer things now that fly along with the racers, and you know, I mean, you get to see them running. You're like, wow, that's fast. But 
but I think this was like the 400 or, or something where you actually go around the track once or more than once, and you've got this sprinter. And uh, I've pulled a hamstring before, but I'm not by any means an athlete. Uh, athletes, when you see them in a full, full run, and they got those you know, huge legs, so all they do is train. And you see them uh, blow out a hamstring. Have you ever seen that? I mean, that thing goes, and, and there's nothing subtle about it, right? And so you've got this racer. It's in the Olympics, and he's coming around the corner. All of a sudden, his hamstring goes. I mean, he just blows it out. And, and all he's trying to do is stay on one leg, but he's got all the speed built up, so it's these huge, awkward hops from one leg to the other, and he's, he's grabbed his other leg, and, and he's all contorted. And you can tell pretty quickly that all of a sudden he knows, I mean, you know, he knows exactly what's going on, and that race is done. He can't win. He can't place. It's over. All that training, all that preparation, all those hopes, those dreams. Uh, and so he realizes, though, that, that uh, there's the finish line. He wants to finish it. I mean, the emotion going through this guy. He's in agony and pain, emotional pain. And he starts trying to hop his way towards the finish line. And where the camera angle, and if you've seen the clip, you remember this. The camera angle is here, and he's kind of coming at you at an angle. And all of a sudden, you see a guy come out from, you know, you don't know where he's coming from. He's coming out of the stands. But he loops in on the track behind this runner and starts running towards him. And it's an older guy uh, that's not in shape, and he's running. And, you know, you know he's not a runner and what he's doing, and you're kind of wondering what's going on. I've seen fans run out on, on fields before, things like that. And so you're wondering what's going on. He gets kind of by those security guys, comes up to this runner, and at first the runner doesn't know who he is and kind of, leave me alone, leave me alone, uh, realizes maybe that if this person touches me, I don't get credit for, for finishing the race, you know, on the official stat sheets. I don't know what was going through his mind. Uh, it could have been both of those, I don't know who you are, or don't touch me, you'll, you'll mess it up. Uh, but, but pretty soon realizes this is his father. His father was in the stands, he'd flown all the way to see his son race realizes it's his father, and finally loops his arm around his father. His father comes up underneath him and, and starts helping him slowly towards this finish line. And the minute he sees that it's his father, it's like the emotions, like the floodgates just, you know, come open. And you see just, just all the emotion, the disappointment, the pain, and he's just weeping. And there's his father up underneath him. And Jesus who tells us these things, I've told you these things, you're going to have trouble in this world. And there's times coming where you're going to desert, and, and there's just difficult times. Uh, I've told you these things that you may have peace, and in this world you're going to have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Now, I think we do a couple things. We push Jesus away because we don't stop long enough and settle our heart long enough uh, to realize he's here to help. We get wallowing in self-pity sometimes. You ever done that? I mean, you know, bouts of self-pity are amazing. You know, they're the things you would want no one to see, you know, because <laughs> you spiral. And, and sometimes I think we're there and we're going to get away from me, get away from me. I'm, I'm busy. Don't touch me. I don't know who you are. And we're so locked up in our own junk that we don't realize this person's here to help us. Or... We're so caught up in the fact that I will win, I will succeed, I'm going to conquer this world, I'm going to finish this race on my own, I've got it all together, that don't touch me, you'll ruin the race. I won't get the credit for it in the book. Don't, I don't need your help. 
So we push and we push and we push. And finally, there's a point where we have to break and say, we can't do it alone. Jesus came because we needed someone to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. There is no pride. I mean, that, that whole thing's already over. That game's up. We can't do it alone. And we have to realize it and let him come up underneath our arm and help us on this race, this tough race, this difficult race, as we move along. Jesus says in another place, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy, and take my yoke upon you, and my yoke is easy, my burden is light, I'll give you rest for your souls, that you may have peace, that it may go well, that you may have the help that you need, that you will not be overwhelmed, that you will not be put underneath um, there's tests and trials coming. And there's only one place we can go to get the help that we need. That's what grace is. Now, in the other services, uh, I had someone come up and share a testimony. He couldn't be here the third service. But I wanted to just illustrate some of these things from someone's life. That there's times of understanding, but in those times, we're already staring at our next trial, our next test, because life is difficult. And so John Lemke came up, and I'll just paraphrase it for you. Uh, he told a story of when he played baseball in college. He was a great pitcher, from what I understand. And he told a story. They had a real, uh, uh, <laughs> a real piece of work for a coach. Um, and what he would do is he wanted to see the, the mental toughness of his players. And so once a year, right before uh, Thanksgiving, he would pair them off according to weight, and they would have to box against their teammates. And so John tells the story, his sophomore year was the first time he's doing that, and he got paired up against a freshman. And so he gets in uh, that day, finds out who's going to box, it's a weird feeling, but, but they, they did like any of us would do. You know, you, you go rent Rocky. Uh, you watch a little Rocky, you listen to some music, and you get yourself all pumped up, and, and you, you, you think how wonderful this is going to be, and how easy it's going to be, and how you know exactly what's going to happen. It's going to be just like Rocky, you know. You're going to knock him out. And John got in there, three rounds of a minute each. First round, 45 seconds, he got knocked flat cold. Uh, uh, the guy knocked him out. Saw white, legs didn't work. Um, you know, move him over to the side, okay, next match. Uh, and he said it was a real humbling experience. He got knocked flat uh, because he underestimated what it was. The next year he came in, uh, and he knew better. <laughs> and he had a different mindset, and he was prepared. It's kind of what Jesus is trying to do for us. Don't get caught unawares. Life is going to be tough. Be sober-minded. Go in there thinking clearly. Don't walk in there, you know, fresh off Rocky and think that this is a perfect world. And John went into the next one sober-minded, thinking clearly, prepared uh, and he did what anyone would do who had gotten knocked out the year before. He played defense the whole time and made it out there without getting knocked out. Uh, all he wanted to do was not get knocked out two years in a row. Uh, and I can understand that. And so John shared this story, and then he shared a little bit from his own life. And real quickly, what he shared was two years ago, he basically turned his life around and gave it over to, to, to Jesus. He committed his life to the Lord, and it was such a wonderful aha moment. Everything became clear. It all became uh, rosy. And, and he coasted on that and then got blindsided and knocked out. 
and he, in his words, says it's taken a year and a half to get back to where he started that summer. And he says, and there's no way he'll ever fall now because he's been knocked out and he knows what that's like and he's sober-minded with his faith and with life at this point. It's just like that boxing match. That in life with his faith, his, his words to me were, he's not going to get caught on his heels anymore. He's going to be on his toes. And what Jesus is doing is these disciples now have had an aha moment and it's rosy and it's all come together for him. And Jesus realizes they're on their heels. They're not ready for this next trial. And so he tells them what's coming. And he tries to prepare them for what's coming. That they may be prepared, sober-minded, clear-headed on the reality of what's ahead. I remember my life as a Christian was very difficult until I got one thing put together. And it was this. Uh, Missionaries were the ones that have a really difficult life. They go over to Uganda, they go to Ecuador, they go wherever, and life is really tough for them. But I'm not a missionary. I live in America, and I'm a Christian. So everything's supposed to be easy for me. All happy, all roses, all easy. And so I had a set of expectations that didn't match reality. And I was continuously frustrated. Don't we do that? We do that, don't we? And so here's the thing that I had to get into my mind. Jesus didn't say there's these missionaries, they go overseas and they're pilgrims, they're sojourners, they're strangers in a land not their own. No, he looks at all of us and says, guess what? Your citizenship is of heaven. This is not your home. You're a pilgrim. You're a stranger. You're a sojourner. And so I began to realize I'm a missionary. Wherever I live, I ought to think of myself as a missionary. Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. You will be my witnesses. Even if you just work hard, like Paul says, work hard that they may see your kind of life. Even if you're just working hard and you're not standing up or preaching or doing anything else like that, you are a missionary. What does a missionary go do if they go over to Uganda? They don't just go preaching, 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 preaching. They go find a town. And they start to try and work hard and build relationships and, and, and plant seeds that they can then water and hopefully someday harvest. Well, I came to a realization uh, recently. We live in a post-Christian nation, and Oregon is the least church of all the states in America. And I was driving over to Portland, and I was seeing the areas that they've clear-cut. Have you guys ever seen those areas? I mean, it's just a splotch of, you know, they came through and clear-cut them. My grandparents' generation was looking at a harvest field. And it was always about a crusade or a revival. Go out with the sickle and bring home the harvest. Make a call. Who wants to get saved? Who wants to pray this prayer? We're going to bring in a harvest tonight. In Oregon, guess what? Today, we're looking at a patch of land that's been clear cut. People that didn't grow up in Christian homes, that don't understand the Christian message, that are hostile to the Christian message, and we kind of got to go in and plant little saplings and take care of them so that we can someday be able to bring in a harvest. That's what a missionary does. Living in Bend, Oregon, if we have the right mentality, is a missionary lifestyle. You go in, you plant, you cultivate so that someday you might have the opportunity to reap a harvest. And when I finally got that, that mentality 
squared or, or that, the, the correct understanding in my mind, that aha moment, those expectations set in my mind, it helped a lot. I'm a missionary. Guess what? Just like the disciples, it was kind of a euphoric moment. Great. I figured it all out. I just need to treat myself like a missionary. That's a lot different from walking through trials that missionaries walk through, right? Knowing you're going to face trials and facing the trials are two different things. Knowing you're going to have to run through a gauntlet and get impounded as you're running through a gauntlet are two different things. And so we always find ourselves in these moments where it comes clear and we kind of breathe a sigh of relief and go, now it's going to be easier. It makes sense. And if it makes sense, how could it not be easier? And what we've got to be careful to do is not to do is rock back on our heels. We've got to stay on our toes and say, you know what? It's a wonderful thing that I've gained this insight and this clarity, but there's a trial coming. There's a trial coming. And so what the title of this message was was simply this. Between understandings. Marie threw away the last batch of notes pages and then she reprinted a new one because she thought I'd done a typo because I make a lot of typos. And she thought for sure I meant understanding. Uh, and I said, no, I, I meant between understandings. Because we always catch ourselves coming off of the last great insight and heading for who knows what. And even if we know it's coming, the way it's going to feel when we get there is going to be different than what we, we think it's going to be like. And so we catch ourselves in life on this planet as strangers between understandings. It's a marathon race. When you graduate fourth grade, guess what? You're already in fifth grade. When you graduate seventh grade, you're already in eighth grade. And I said, you know, when you graduate college, you're already in hell. You know, the rest of life is really difficult. Uh, but you always find yourself on this spectrum going from one to the next and being caught in a process. And what Jesus is doing is we're, we're getting a sneak peek of an aha moment of his disciples, and then him coming along as a shepherd, as a big brother, as a teacher, as someone who loves them and cares for them, trying to warn them and prepare them. There's a new trial coming, but it's okay. Just lift up your arm. Let me come up underneath you. Let me help you through this, and it'll be all right. And so just simply in conclusion, that's really what it comes down to. We're all walking in here at a different place, and life isn't easy. And I believe all of the messages we preach, if we understand our faith, ought to be Christ-centered. What that means is whatever passage I'm talking about, whatever book I'm talking about, whatever lesson I'm talking about, if we understand the nature of our faith, it ought to be something that can come back to Christ. What does Christ have to say with this? What does Christ have to do with this? And in this, Christ is everything with this message. It's his grace poured out on us. It's, it's what he has done for us, what we celebrated, what we remember with the Lord's Supper that allows us to now pray to God. And maybe this morning that's what you need to walk out with and say, am I bold enough to pray the way Jesus says I should pray? I can only do it because of his grace and because I'm accepting him. Or maybe it's you're running your race and you're just getting beat down. You, keep, you can't keep going. And you've got to be willing to, to lift up your arm and let Jesus help you through these trials. Maybe you are mired in self-pity, and you've got to realize there's no end to that. You've got to stop for a minute and listen to his voice. 
He's the one that can reach into a pit. If we could get ourselves out of our own pits, guess what? We would have already done it, right? And so when we're in a pit or someone we know is in a pit, what they need is a hand to help lift them out of that pit. So that's what the psalmist says. You've lift me out of the pit, out of the mire, the muck, the clay. This is a Christ-centered message because Christ is saying he's coming along with us to help us through life. He's overcome it. He can get us out of our, our pits in our trials, and we need to listen long enough to that voice, not just what our own heart's saying. That wherever we're coming at this from this morning, Jesus is smack in the middle of it. And it's his grace and his love, his counsel, his assistance that we need. We're caught between understandings. Jesus says, be prepared, be on your toes, don't be on your heels, and take heart. For I have overcome the world. And let's pray. Father, we just want to give thanks to you for sending your son. And if there's anything this morning that we ought to be celebrating, it's that because of Jesus, grace has been poured out on our lives. That he has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. That everything somehow points back to that. That's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper. So, Father, if there's anything we should give thanks about this morning, it would be your son and what he has done for us. May we cling to him. May we abide in him. May we follow Jesus and not go our own way. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you, and we'll see you next week. Hope to see you next week.